All right, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 12, starting a new chapter today. I know Paul kind of already uh, highlighted a little bit about the conference that we went to, um, but I want to share a little bit more about um, what we were able to experience there together with other brothers and sisters in the Lord. Not only yesterday, but on Friday as well, uh, Dr. Truman had so many good things to say about why we are where we are and how it isn't just a, a real recent shift in the culture that has caused us to get where we are, but that this is the byproduct of 400 years of a change in the way that human beings think about themselves and about their own personal identities. Um, he's a, Dr. Truman's a faithful Presbyterian brother. He, he's a professor at Grove City College and very, very blessed in the arena of the mind. And uh, he helped us to experience understand from a biblical perspective why we are where we are today. Uh, on conference Friday, uh, a number of pastors and leaders from churches in the area came together for a special discussion on the usefulness of confessions in the health and well-being of the church, which just so happens to have a significant connection to what I'm preaching on this morning. Uh, the three verses that we're going to look at are going to talk about a very simple confession of faith that may show what's going on within the heart of the individual who gives it. Now, when I talk about confessions, I, I need to be clear on what I mean here. I'm not talking about confessions of sin, and that's very important, but it's different than a confession of faith. I'm talking about a historic document that lays out in a detailed and organized way, a structure, a summary of what a believer understands about the Bible that all of you have in your lap right now. The Bible is always the true foundation of Christian faith, but what do you believe that this Bible is saying to you? How do you interpret it? How do you understand the different things throughout the 66 books of this Bible to work together to become one message for the Lord? These are the questions that a historical confession seeks to answer for us. There are a number of different confessions that have been established and have become very helpful over the years to believers, each one applying to one tradition or another. The Second London Baptist Confession of 1689 Heidelberg Catechism, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Canons of Dort, and the Anglican 39 Articles are just a few of the great confessions that we can read through and, and get clarity upon what the Word is teaching to us. We currently make use of a statement of faith called the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, but we also draw a lot of instruction as leaders of the church from the Second London Baptist Confession I mentioned just a few moments ago because it's a more thorough and comprehensive description of the Baptist understanding of Scripture. And so these kinds of comprehension, comprehensive confessions are, are useful on a number of different fronts. First of all, they, they help us to hold to a, a historical confession of faith that will help us to see how the things that you believe about God fit together cohesively so that your beliefs won't contradict one another. So you won't believe one thing about this portion of the Bible, but then find out that it actually contradicts something that's in another portion of the Bible. It tries to look at God's message holistically. Secondly, these confessions of faith can help someone else to understand just what kind of a Christian you are. Every true believer cares about the Bible, but obviously not every believer interprets God's Word exactly the same way. So by agreeing with a historical confession of faith, you're helping other people to have a more thorough understanding of how God has shaped your faith and how it's going to play out in the way that you live your life. Thirdly, it can help you to, to stay rooted 
in an authentic, historical Christianity that is not just swept away by every tide of society, by, by every turn of the culture. Uh, unfortunately, we're seeing today that the church is being lambasted by the ideas and opinions of the world that we live in. And how do we stay connected to this historical Christianity that has truly worshipped Christ well for 2,000 years? Uh, one of the tools that can help us to do that is a historical confession or the creeds. And fourthly, these confessions and creeds can bring great unity to the body of believers that together confesses and holds to them. Uh, believers who say amen to something like the 1689 London Baptist Confession know that the things that they are learning together, the direction that they are applying the words together is very similar to one another. And it's an interpretation that they can all, by and large, agree with. That way they can apply their living worship to God in a way that says amen to His Word in a unified manner. So these confessions can be very useful tools. They help us to, uh, to draw near to the Lord and to stay rooted in the Word of God. But they have to go beyond the realm of mere words. No matter how fancy a document is, no matter how long it's been around, if it just stays words on a page, it's not going to do the believer much good. It needs to result in action that matches the confession. And so we're going to see today that as we begin uh, chapter 12, that Paul is also concerned about our actions matching our confessions. So we're going to be focusing today on the first three verses of this chapter in 1 Corinthians. Uh, but in order to provide a little bit of context, what I'm going to have us do today is read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting with verse 1, but continuing on to verse 11. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray by, to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. So let's take a moment now and pray and thank the Lord God for the scriptures that he has laid out before us and ask that he would guide our understanding of it as we consider it today as brothers and sisters in one family. Almighty God, we thank you for what you have shown us about yourself and we know and trust that the Holy Spirit truly inspired the Apostle Paul to write these things down. These were not just the designs of his own mind and creative thinking, Lord God, but that you used him as an instrument of faith that he would codify for us scripture that would be a blessing to your church, not only for this church, not only for the church who heard it originally, but for churches for our, however long it takes before you decide it's time to come back. 
And so, God, help us to stay anchored to this word. Help us to recognize the power that it has to give us stability, the power that it has to help us worship in a way that is honoring to you and to be a church that is truly unified around the truth. So we pray, Lord God, that you would give us humility and patience as we work through it. Lord, let us not be uh, impatient, rushing through to try to get done quickly, Lord God, but let us take our time and really digest these words that have eternal significance in our, of pertinence to our lives because they come from our Lord and Savior himself. So we praise you and thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the first word of chapter 12 reads, Now concerning. Now concerning. Let me point something out to you right off the bat here. Paul has been using that exact phrase, now concerning, throughout the letter as a kind of organizational device. Paul is a very ordered thinker. Sometimes it takes a little effort to see his order. His order isn't Western in origin, so it, he doesn't think exactly how we think all the time. But he does use certain organizational devices as markers to help us to see when he is furthering an argument or how he is changing topic throughout the letter. We see first in 1 Corinthians 7.1, he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So in saying those things, he's introducing to us a new group of material that he plans to work through in the letter. Uh, the reference he's making there is to a letter that the church doesn't have anymore. We don't have the letter that the Corinthians wrote to Paul, but that letter contained a number of questions or comments that Paul felt compelled to talk about with the Corinthians and to further the conversation. Now some people might say, well, why don't we have that letter? Well, Paul was inspired by God, but a whole bunch of Corinthians that were shaky in their faith at times we're not necessarily all inspired by God, so we don't need that letter. That letter is not the perfect proclamation of what God wants for his people. But God has, in his providence, decided that we need this letter, and so this is the letter that we study through today, 1 Corinthians. And uh, as we read through the letter, we see several times this construct pops up again and again. 1 Corinthians 7.25, now concerning the betrothed. Paul wanted to address an issue that was existent in the letter that they had sent to him about whether people should get married or not. We spent several weeks talking about the virtues of marriage and also the potential virtues of singleness, if you recall to that. 1 Corinthians 8.1, now concerning food offered to idols. And Paul then shifted gears and began to really look at this cultural phenomenon of whether these converted pagans and whether these believing Jews should eat meat that was sacrificed to false gods in the marketplace. And so he went very much in depth with practical instruction on, on how they should view that meat and to realize that there is no power in and of itself in the meat, uh, but that we need to be careful that we don't make weaker brothers and sisters stumble with what we do. Uh, and then he says in chapter 12 here, now concerning the spiritual gifts. So what he's doing is he's marking off a new section, a new portion of this letter that will be dedicated to a broader understanding of the spiritual gifts. He's going to do this phrase two more times throughout the course of the letter in chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 1, he's going to say now concerning the collection for the saints. So he's going to talk about this offering that was brought together so that they could distribute it to poorer churches throughout the, the region. And then in verse 12, he's going to talk about their brother Apollos and things concerning him and his role that he's playing in this ministerial effort by the apostles. So these are all topics that the Corinthians need clarification about. And Paul has addressed them item by item, case by case, giving the brothers and sisters the instruction that they needed. Paul's organizational device shows us that the category of spiritual gifts is going to occupy the next three chapters of the letter. 
And so in the weeks to come, we're going to be looking at a, a topic that is often controversial amongst churches. We're going to look at each of the gifts that are lifted, listed here. We're also going to expand beyond this to look at the gifts that are also listed in Roman, Romans chapter 12. Uh, we're going to consider their appropriate use and the benefit that they could give to the church. We're going to spend time thinking about one of the most important gifts in chapter 13, the gift of love which is something that we should all be giving to the Lord, but also to one another as a church. And then finally, we're going to consider the validity and the use specifically of the sign gifts in the church today. So be in prayer that the Lord will use these uh, sermons to bless the congregation here, to help us to grow in our understanding and our respect for the word and instruction of God. Paul does not want these Corinthian brothers and sisters to be uninformed about the reality of spiritual gifts. That's what he says. I don't want you to be ignorant, literally, of these gifts. And God does not want you and I to be uninformed about them either. But before we dive deeply into this topic of the gifts, why does the chapter start off with the mention of the gifts and then almost immediately shift gears to a different topic, it seems? Verses 2 and 3 seem to focus more on the topic of one's confession. It seems to focus more on the proof of whether somebody has the Holy Spirit or not? How do you know if someone is a true believer? Some commentators kind of struggled to place this here at the beginning of the letter, but when we take this section as a unit, when we see this as three whole chapters, all really helping the church to understand the use of the spiritual gifts and the power that the Spirit gives to the believer, then we can understand this in its context. Verses 1 through 3 are a part of a bigger chunk of information. It should become clear that some were misunderstanding in the church in Corinth the purpose and the significance of spiritual gifts. There was apparently a misconception that if you are truly saved, perhaps you have to exhibit one or another of the more spectacular gifts. One of the gifts that had a, a more miraculous feel to it. And so verses 2 through 3 should really be read as Paul preemptively putting that idea to rest. We still see that same kind of mistake today in some Pentecostal churches, where there's almost a two-stage understanding of salvation. First, a person believes in Jesus. They, you know, they, they say they, they want Him, they confess their sin, and their sins are washed away by Christ. But then those churches will sometimes eagerly await the moment when that believer first speaks in tongues or prophesies. Because without that outward sign, they don't have significant confidence that the person has really received the Holy Spirit. And they root that understanding of the Spirit in two biblical examples that I hope you'll understand by the end of the message today are taken somewhat out of context. Acts chapter 10 speaks of Cornelius. He's, a, he's not a Jewish man. He was a, a, a pagan gentleman, but he had a reverence for God. He was God-honoring as a Roman. And Cornelius has an interaction with Peter where the gospel is shared with him. And Cornelius' household, though they are uncircumcised men, believe. And God causes those believing pagans to have the Holy Spirit fill them in a unique way. They all begin to speak in tongues. And Peter subsequently baptizes them. Now, is this a normative situation? It is not normative. In fact, it was quite unusual. It was unusual for a purpose. This is right after Peter has received this vision from God 
where a blanket from heaven comes down, essentially a picnic blanket, if you will, with a feast spread out upon it. And in that feast are several food items prepared that do not fit into the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. Meats that were formerly forbidden for Jews to eat, and yet the voice of God is calling out in this vision to Peter to partake of the feast. And Peter's very resistant to this. I wonder if he thought it was a trick of some kind, maybe like a test of his faithfulness. I have never eaten any of these things since my youth. So why would I eat of them now, Peter argues. But this vision comes again and again until he realizes that God is revealing a change and a shift. The old covenant is passing away and the new covenant is replacing it. And so this new covenant truth does not contain in it the same restrictions on the diet that the national Israelites had to observe to the glory of God. And so this shift away from the old covenant to the new comes with a revolutionary new focus on God's attention. He is now bringing the gospel not just to the nation of Israel, but he is bringing it to the nations of the world. And so that is being set up in this image of the blanket coming down, that those barriers that used to separate the Israelites from the people around them in some ways are, are coming down because now those who are not of Abraham can still be of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ who fulfills the promises of Abraham. And so this Gentile family is filled specifically with the Spirit to show that if the work of God can be done in a miraculous way through these uncircumcised pagans, then the rest of the believers, most of whom were Hebrews, should not think of them as any less than, than they thought of themselves. They are co-heirs and equals in the kingdom of God. A second uh, example that Pentecostal churches will often turn to is Acts 19, verses 1 through 7. This is in uh, the, the city of Ephesus, where Paul will find 12 believers, a small little group of disciples who have trusted in Jesus Christ, but A, they were not baptized in Christ. They had received a baptism uh, through John the Baptist or his disciples, but they did not have the baptism of Jesus yet. And secondly, B, they had not even heard that there was a Holy Spirit that they were supposed to receive. They had, they had no understanding of this great helper that God gives to every believer. And so Peter baptizes these individuals and they speak in tongues. Now, is this normative? If that happened consistently every time we saw baptisms in the New Testament, we could say, yes, that's normative. But it doesn't. In fact, almost every other place where you read of conversions happening when the gospel is preached in truth and people humble themselves before the Lord and trust in Jesus, you don't see this speaking in tongues happening in a normative way. This is a peculiar situation. This is a special formative grace for that particular community who needed a witness to the legitimacy of the Holy Spirit. Remember, they had not even heard of the Holy Spirit, so they didn't know what the Holy Spirit was. So here is, here is a, a, a picture for them of the power that the Holy Spirit brings and a prelude to the fact that this Spirit is going to be a great gift for them as disciples of Jesus in Ephesus. So conspicuous in its absence are dozens of biblical examples that we see of others believing, others being baptized, but no mention of prophesying or speaking in tongues in those situations. If you are saved, friends, you have the Holy Spirit. And as we will learn by working through the next three chapters, not all who have the Holy Spirit speak in tongues. It would be wrong for us to think somebody is saved but doesn't yet have the Spirit. 
Those individuals in Ephesus were thinking about Christ, but they needed the Spirit. They needed to be saved by, by Jesus. And they were in that moment. They were baptized, and God gave them a sign of that. So Paul does not want these individuals to be uninformed about the spiritual gifts. He specifically wants to show them that the giving of these gifts is up to the discretion of God, that not all will receive the same gifts. And so Paul wants to show them that, they are, that there is a better way of trying to see evidence of true belief in a person than looking specifically for one spiritual gift or another. So let's look carefully at how Paul accomplishes that. Verse 2. When you were pagans, you were led astray by mute idols. Notice the, the use of a speaking verb there, by mute idols. However you were led. Okay? What is declared here by way of implication is that these believers used to be pagans, but they aren't anymore. There has been a distinct shift in their identity. They used to be godless people, or they used to worship gods of their own design, counterfeit gods that have no real reality. But having been exposed to the good news of Jesus Christ and having been moved to repentance by the Holy Spirit, these former pagans are now the holy property of God himself. Their lives have been radically changed. Now, had all the Corinthians been pagans? We know that's not the case. Not all were. Some were a part of the old covenant people of Israel and had heard of Christ and, and had repented. Some of them had grown up with the law. They had a heritage of interacting with God through the prophets and through the priests. And their ancestors had been governed by the kings that God had appointed to them. But even these Jewish Corinthians who had joined the church by trusting in Jesus Christ even their lives had been radically changed. The Holy Spirit that used to reside in the temple, in the holiest of holies, didn't reside there anymore. Now it resided right inside of them. They were being made new as well because the Holy Spirit had come in to change them and make them something more than what they were before. But because the majority of the Corinthians were from a secular background, Paul points out that they cannot remain what they used to be. Now that they've been given spiritual life and their eyes have been opened to the truth, their past has come into a greater focus for them. They should be able to clearly see the deception that they were suffering from before Christ woke them up. Now remember, a key theme for this letter, and it's one that we're going to keep coming back to again and again as we work our way through it, is that Paul was very concerned for these Corinthians. They lived in a secular place. They lived in a place where the culture around them was anything but holy. And so it was very difficult for these individuals who came out of unholy lifestyles and had unholy families and lived in unholy communities. It was a challenge for them to put behind them the things of the flesh and to live as redeemed men and women. And so a theme, a very strong theme throughout this letter is don't keep being what you were. Be what you are now in Christ. Corinthians, you have been made holy, so live holy lives. Trust in Jesus to the point where it causes all the things that used to offend God in your life to be washed out and, and taken away, pruned out of your life, and walk in the newness of life that he has promised to you today. So when we are justified by faith in Christ, we are made legally innocent before the Lord God, but we are not made perfect in a practical way. We are made guilt-free, because all of our iniquities was put on the shoulders of Jesus and he suffered and bled and died to pay the full penalty of those sins. 
But though we are now deemed legally innocent by justification, we are not made perfect in a practical way yet. We cannot yet fully realize this, this wonderful new identity that we have because we still dwell in a body that's impacted by sin. We haven't been given a new body yet. Christ is resurrected, but we have yet to be resurrected. We live in a body that is, has desires that are evil, that have tendencies and habits that are, that are wrong, that are against God's word. We live in a world, an environment, that's still corrupted, a world where sin still abounds. And the impact of that world still has a potential to sway us and to influence us. And so as a result, we've got to battle that temptation every day. We've got to come up against the temptations of the flesh. We've got to be able to discern between good spirits and bad spirits. We've got to be able to discern what is holy and pleasing to the Lord and what is detestable to Him. Because even when it's unintentional, Sometimes we find ourselves walking backward into the behaviors that should no longer be acceptable in our Christian life. Or we are influenced so heavily by the lost world around us that we begin to behave like our lost neighbors instead of like our own family. Not only are these Corinthians fully aware that they were once pagans, they should fully understand that during the time of their rebellion to God, they were subject to a destructive kind of deception. They were led astray. And this is a very interesting term, by mute idols. And what that's talking about there is these statues, these images, these representations of false gods that they would go and offer offerings to. Just as the prophets of Baal in 1, Corinthians, or in 1 Kings 18, when Elijah challenged them and said, let's, let's give an offering to our Lord God and invite our God to show His truth by burning up the offering on the altar. When the prophets of Baal marched around their altar and pled to their God, and some of them even cut their own skin and poured blood of their own out onto the altar to try to spur on the, the response of this deity Baal that they worshipped, what did they get? They got silence. Because there is no God called Baal. There is no God. He's, he's a joke. He is a lie. Now, there may be demonic forces that are trying to get us to believe in these things like Baals. They're just trying to get us to become idol worshipers. But those gods are dead gods. They are mute statues. And so they can't make a confession of one kind or another. They are made with the hands of the men who worship them. Now we learn in chapter 10 that there were, in fact, demonic forces behind some of those pagan temples and rituals. But the contrast that Paul is building is, is very clear here. Those false gods deceived the Corinthians before they were saved, even though they didn't have the power to speak. And now, with this overemphasis on the tongue gifts, they have the power to be deceived by speech that, as we're going to learn, doesn't even have any real meaning to it itself. The implication here is important. Here is why their past is relevant. Because Paul does not want their present to fall into the same fuel pattern as their past. He wants them to mature beyond that. They are not to allow themselves to be vulnerable again to the pattern of sin that used to define them. They must be careful of those who say they're filled with the Spirit, even some who might be speaking in tongues of a kind, but are often uttering things in the public assembly that make no sense or aren't even intelligible. So I don't want to steal too much from sermons that we're going to be preaching in the weeks to come. But eventually, Paul is going to show us that tongues was being used in a kind of unintelligible 
way. They were using it as like a prayer language. And Sunday gatherings were being interrupted by outbursts of people speaking in languages that no one could understand. On the surface, that appeared very spiritual. When someone just starts speaking in a language no one understands, the first question is, wow, is that person being used of God? But when the language that was being used had no real meaning, it communicated no message, then all it accomplished was confusion in the congregation. It appeared very spiritual. But if these people were claiming to speak in tongues and no one could understand what they were saying, they too were essentially mute, like the idols that came before them. So Paul wants to guard them from superficial proofs that a person's walking by the Spirit. It is possible for someone to make a bunch of noises, claim that it's the Holy Spirit giving them the gift of tongues, when in reality the rest of their lives might show little to no evidence that Jesus is indeed their Lord. We can't just look at superficial proofs and think that's enough to make us believe someone truly trusts Jesus. Ultimately, which proof should matter more to us? Paul offers a kind of spiritual litmus test to help us have a better understanding of what constitutes true belief. And so in verse 3, he says, Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says that Jesus is accursed. Okay, So he gives us a negative proof. And then he says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. This is a positive proof. Two declarations, two contrasting phrases that someone might say. And so let's see what Paul has to say about these things. If a person uses their words to curse the name of Jesus, this is the negative proof, then they do not have the Spirit of God. We can be assured that if someone speaks wrongly about Christ, no matter how much they tell you that they are an agent of God the Father, they are not. The Spirit is not within them. Now this is true of someone who may even seem to have some kind of spiritual power. It was not unheard of through the, the, the course of Scripture, for, for people of God to run into other people who are not of God, who had some kind of spiritual power. Do you remember reading in Exodus, the magicians in Pharaoh's court, when Moses is declaring to the Pharaoh that it's time for him to let the people of Israel go so that they can go off into the wilderness and worship their God? He comes to them with the special staff that God had given to him. And he threw that staff down onto the ground. And what happened to the staff? And this isn't Moses' power. This is God's power in Moses. That staff hits the ground and it turns into a living snake. It wasn't just a piece of wood carved to look like a snake. God literally gave it life and it slithered around. And then you read this really interesting bit of information that the magicians in Pharaoh's court, uh, they huddled together and they got themselves their own stick and they said some words and they threw it on the ground and it also turned into a snake. I always like, it's a little bit like, what? That's weird, right? They were able to do what Moses did. But we get right off the bat here that whatever efforts these Egyptians made to try to mimic the power of God was not truly the power of God. The snake that was made of Moses' staff slithers over and eats the snake that the Egyptian magicians made. Right away, God is declaring his power over whatever power they do seem to have. Now, there's no denying that's, that's a creepy thing, that those guys were able to make a stick into a snake apart from the power of God. So there is some demonic influence there, some sort of influence. But again, God is showing right away, whatever that power looks like, it's nothing compared to the power of God. 
We see it a couple more times as the Egyptians are able to, in some ways, mimic the first couple of miracles that Moses does. But eventually, they can't, they can't match his power. They can't do what only he can do. Uh, we also see examples of this in the New Testament. People with supernatural skills, like the young slave girl who could tell fortunes. You remember reading about her in Acts chapter 16? Uh, the apostle Peter and, and others were going from town to town preaching, and this young lady comes alongside them and starts to proclaim to the world. And I always thought the proclamation was a pretty good proclamation. She says, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Nothing blasphemous in that, right? It's true. She was telling the truth. But it becomes clear as you read how they respond to her that she was not doing the mission any good by going around constantly saying this. And in fact, we read that she annoyed Peter so much so that he cast the demonic spirit that was in her out of her. So she had a prophecy to give, but what the people didn't know is that this, this woman who was able to divine spirits was actually being used by evil spirits to try to disrupt the mission that Peter was doing and the others were doing. So he casts out that spirit, and soon the people that were using that young girl as a source of profit are angry because she can no longer divine what she used to be able to divine. So an example of some kind of supernatural power that isn't the power of God, but God's power is always greater than it. One more example. Acts chapter 8 tells us of a man named Simon, the Magi, a magician. And Simon had done miraculous works. They must have been in the line or the mold of how those Egyptian magicians had worked earlier. But he hears the gospel preached and he sees the amazing things that uh, Paul and the others are doing, Peter and the others are doing, and he's impressed by this. He proclaims faith because he likes that power. That's impressive to him. And he gets baptized even. So this is a comfort to me as a pastor because we try to be very careful about baptizing only people that have a true profession of faith. But here, somebody slipped through the apostles' fingers, Magi gets baptized, and we quickly see that maybe his heart was not in the right place because he comes to the apostles and he offers to buy from them the power of the Holy Spirit so that he too can cast out demons like they can. So does Simon the Magi, does he have good intentions in doing this? It's pretty clear to the apostles he does not. His offer to buy the Holy Spirit was a way to have power over God's power. And that's not something that a person with a humbled heart before the Lord should do. And so Peter rebukes him, declares that he is still in the bondage of sin. And the man, in fear and trembling, prays that Peter will, or asks Peter to pray for him so that he might not be cast away and the wicked judgments that Peter warned him of would not come upon his head. So we see examples of real spiritual power that isn't from God. There is a spiritual warfare going on around us that we don't always understand, that we can't always identify. So we can't just write that off. What we need to do is understand. Don't be led astray. Even those who seem to be very spiritual prove not to have the Holy Spirit of God if they speak any kind of curse upon the name of Jesus our Lord. Now is this kind of a curse in word only? Or is it also in deed? We're going to see here that confessions are really powerful, not just in the words that they say, but in the way that they, they create action in people. So our behavior can expose an absence of holy fear for the Lord. If somebody says that they are filled with the Spirit, and maybe even does things that look godly, but you look at the total 
testimony of their lives and there seems to be disrespect to the Lord God again and again and again, that's a testimony against the name of Christ. You've got to be careful about a person like that. Now, there is repentance for those who are truly in faith. We're all going to stumble and fall in some points. But somebody who is declaring curses against the name of God, who is cursing the testimony of Christ, cannot have the Spirit in them. The Spirit and the Son are perfectly united in will and in nature. They are of one essence, and there is no scenario where the Spirit will be at odds with the Son. So one who says that Jesus is accursed can in no way be doing that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Whatever spiritual fruit they seem to be bearing is not from above, but from below. They will have proved the absence of the Spirit by their unwillingness to affirm and worship Jesus Christ. So that is the first statement that gives us clarity about whether a person has the Holy Spirit, a negative proof. Here is the second. No one can say Jesus is Lord except the Holy Spirit, except in the Holy Spirit. Now these two statements are both confessional phrases. A confessional statement is an outward expression of what a person holds to and believes and intends to live by. Perhaps the most basic of confessional statements that the New Testament urges us to use is found in Romans 10. If you'd like to, you can turn in your scriptures to Romans chapter 10. I'm sure this confession of faith has probably come across your path before. Those of you who evangelize using the Romans road method of sharing scripture and and the testimony of the gospel, uh, remember that Romans 10 is a crucial part of that. Starting in verse 9, Romans 10 reads, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now what makes this particular confession in Romans 10 significant? So significant that it is intrinsically identified here as the confession that leads to salvation in Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at some of the the reasons why it is so important. It is a confession, first and foremost, about Jesus. You can believe a lot about good and evil, You can even believe some things about God. But your salvation hinges exclusively on what you believe about Jesus Christ. He is the way, He is the truth, and He is the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. That's John 14, 6. So anybody who says, I'm living a good life, I don't really like going to church, and Jesus never was my thing, but I think I will be in heaven because of the good deeds that I do, there's... There's a disconnect there. They don't understand that the confession that leads to salvation is a confession about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who He is, what He did, and whether He is trustworthy or not. Secondly, it is a confession specifically that Jesus is Lord. It tells us something important and detailed about Jesus. He is Lord. He is kurios in the Greek. Now, this is the nature of the new covenant, In this covenantal relationship, Jesus is going to have authority over those whom he calls to himself. He says it in the Great Commission, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, says Jesus. So we want to have a relationship with God through Jesus the Son. If we want to benefit from the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, then Jesus has got to be our Lord. He's not content to be man's consultant. He is not a peddler of wisdom. Jesus is not just a resource for us. He is not just a place that we go to draw power from to increase our own power. 
Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and Jesus is Lord over all. He will not just be our friend, although he will be friendly to us, but he will be our king, or he will remain our wrathful judge. It's a very important distinction to make. Thirdly, this confession in Romans 10 is a declaration of belief that Jesus is indeed raised from the dead. That the thing he said he would do, a thing that no man has the power to do, that Jesus was able to do it. The righteousness of Jesus was not used up in Calvary. He did not expire from existence. By necessity, death could not hold Jesus down. We serve a risen Christ. And that means he not only secured our salvation, but he conquered the curse to such a degree that we who believe will get the benefit of the original garden covenant that God made with Adam, a benefit that Adam had forfeited. Do you remember what the blessings were promised in that covenant, in the garden covenant? If you do not eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will get the tree of life, eternal life. And those who trust in Jesus Christ are privileged to eat of that tree. They are privileged to have life eternal and to live alongside the giver of that life because Jesus, the truer and better Adam, has come to do what Adam failed to do. And those who are in Jesus' covenant have now seen the curses of the covenant they used to be in erased. And they've been given better blessings that are contingent not on our obedience, but on Christ's righteousness. And fourthly, friends, it is a declaration here in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, a declaration of belief that God is the one who raises Jesus from the dead. God the Father. That means that Jesus is not separate from God the Father. He is not opposed to Him. He is not a rogue apart from the Holy Spirit. There is one plain salvation shared between the three persons of the Godhead. It is their plan together for us, and they all play a part in our redemption. I might want to point out quickly in this point that you will hear from time to time somebody push back against an idea called lordship salvation. Now that's a difficult, a difficult argument to, uh, to make. And I want to just take a couple of seconds here. We don't have time. I could take a whole morning talking about the differences between lordship salvation and, and other kinds of salvation. Salvation has to include lordship in it. Now there is perhaps a, a segment of Christianity that likes to hide within the grace of God a, a, a little subpoint, a little asterisk that says, if you don't work hard enough, the grace of Jesus does not apply to you. And that group of people that want to make salvation by grace plus a little bit of works, okay? That subset of Christians will often be considered those in the lordship salvation camp. In other words, if you don't fully submit all of your life to the Lord, if you don't drive to perfection, then you're not worthy of the cross and you cannot be saved. I don't know any people like that, personally. Um, but apparently there is a fear that if you demand lordship from people when they're saved, then, then you're demanding them to earn their salvation. The truth is, couldn't be farther from the truth. True lordship salvation means that because Jesus has done everything you need to be saved, then you now respond to him in thanksgiving and love by treating him for what he is. He is your Lord. And that means you can't take his salvation from him and then just discard him and run off as a free man. 
You cannot receive His gift of grace and then disregard all of His teachings. If you do that, you have no love for Him, you have not trusted Him, and there is not true faith in you. So when we say Lordship, we're not talking about that strange niche called Lordship Salvation, but we are saying that if you want to be saved by Christ, He must be a Lord to you. He won't be less than a Lord to you because it's what He is. So this confession is a confession that we make with our mouths, right? Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. There is both an external component and an internal component. Because when you are in Christ, it affects everything that you are. It doesn't just stay hidden within you. It comes out in your actions. And it doesn't just affect your behaviors. It affects your desires and your loves. So Paul provides clarifying commentary here. He says, with the heart one believes and is justified. So we don't just believe in the head. We don't just think about it intellectually and do all the math and say, yes, it's most likely that Jesus is the, the best way. We don't just think about it in the head. We believe in the heart as well. We love the Lord. We have a desire for Him. We don't just acknowledge the reality of Jesus. We rejoice in the reality of Jesus applied to our sins. And that's not something we could do on our own. That's, that's a joy and an appetite that Christ puts into us. The Holy Spirit makes us desire the things of holiness. But our faith in Christ is not just intellectual. It is also an affection for Him. Real belief will accompany justification. As our faith and trust is placed in Jesus Christ, the effective work of Jesus is legally applied to our situation. We are no longer declared the lawbreaker. We are now declared beloved of God. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. What that means is that belief will not stay forever inside of one who truly believes. That faith will, by order of its very nature, have to come out of us. It will be expressed in reality. And that's, that's partly accomplished in baptism. When we come before the world and many witnesses and say, I am trusting in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. He is my Lord and Savior. But that doesn't stop at baptism. With the mouth, there are words put to use here, not just sounds, right? With the mouth, we declare, we confess that we belong to the Lord God. Now, there are such things as false confessions. We can't think of confessions only as words. Confessions are characterized by words, but confessions are something that we live according to. If we do not live according to what we confess, then our confession is not really a confession. It is false. Matthew 21 uh, gives us, a, a, I think, a really helpful parable in this regard. Jesus is speaking uh, to some of the high priests and some other elders in Israel. And he says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first, and he said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son answered, I will not. But afterwards, he changed his mind, and he went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And the other son answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? And they said, The first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward go change your mind and believe him. 
So let's think about these two brothers. They're each given the same task. Obey. Receive the instruction of your father. Respect him and obey. And the first son was probably more like what I would be. He grumbled. He didn't want to do it. And he said no, but then as he thought about how important his father is to him and the responsibility that he had to him as a son, he went into that vineyard anyway, and he did the work. You have a second son here who says eagerly, yeah, I'll go, no problem, Dad, I got you. And then as soon as Dad turns away, he goes right back to what he was doing. He never makes it into the vineyard. He never really believes or never really obeys his dad. And so which one is the true confession? The truer confession is the confession of the one who goes into the garden and actually does the work because his actions are speaking, not just his words. He said the wrong words, but his actions show that his heart was truly fixed on doing his dad's will. So this confession is not the open says me confession. When we read here in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Does that mean all we got to do is get the whole nation in mass to say the words, Jesus is Lord, and everyone will be saved here? This is not an open says me, like, easy way to get salvation without actual, actually trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Millions of people have walked an aisle in a church somewhere and spoken the words, yes, I want to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And for many, those words were sincere. Some of you said those words yourself at some point in your life. Praise God for that confession of faith that has produced in you a desire to worship your God and to walk with Him, an appetite for holy things. The Holy Spirit was causing a legitimate revolutionary change in those who went forward and said, I, I want Christ, and then their life began to change because of it. But we must take a moment to reflect soberly on the reality that millions of people have had an emotional experience where they felt vulnerable, where they felt exposed, where the preacher said things that applied directly to them, and so they began to feel desperate. They heard the realities of sin and the wages of it being death and hell and separation from God. Or maybe they just wanted to belong so badly to that group of people that had brought them there that day that they went through the motions, they walked the aisle, they said the very same words but those words meant nothing to them. Yes, I want to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And no sooner were the tears dried up from their eyes that they went right back to living their lives as if Jesus did not exist. As if he was not their Lord and Savior. As if they were indeed their own Lord and Savior. I was recently listening to, uh, I believe it was a podcast, but I honestly cannot remember where I heard this. Someone else smarter than me was talking. God knows who it was, um, but I can't take credit for this. They were saying that a professor had challenged a class of students to come up with the saddest short story they could. But here's the catch. They could only use four words. So I'm assuming this is a literature class of some kind. They were doing a writing exercise. You've got to come up with the saddest story you can. You can only use four words. And several students made an attempt at it. But one student happened to be a Christian who knew his Bible and when it was his turn to share his sad story, he drew on his heritage. And he said, I never knew you. Saddest story he could think of. And I suspect you know what he was referring to with that. But if you can't recall, then I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Where we might very well see the saddest full words that could possibly be heard by human ears. This is near the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. A beautiful homily where Jesus 
preach about what it means to be his, to walk as a disciple in the kingdom of heaven. He's getting to the end of this story, this sermon rather, and he, he tells uh, a, a sort of a parable story in verse 21 through 24. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now let's pause there for a second, just for clarity, okay? This is not the lordship salvation sliver of Christianity that says, yep, you got to do all the deeds and then the grace of God is yours. That's not what he's saying here. But what he is saying here is that you cannot call Jesus Lord without the true obedience of the heart and expect to get into heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Not everyone who says to me. You see, friends, confession is more than mere words, isn't it? To confess Christ is to believe in him, to have a faith in him, a trust in him. And that faith and trust, if it's real, will result in transformation in you. The one who does the will of my Father. This is not the one who just says a secret formula of religious words. This is not obey me and I'll respond to you. This is abide in Christ and you will bear fruit. So too in 1 Corinthians 12.3, Paul is speaking of the act of confessing out loud what you hold to in your heart and your mind. Do you want to know whether a person has the Holy Spirit? You will know it by their confession of faith in Jesus as Lord. And that confession is more than what rings out of their mouth. You will know it by the outward expression of their inward devotion. No one can say that Jesus is Lord apart from the Spirit. What is meant here is that no one can hold the confession of Jesus' Lordship apart from the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It's not just so simple as, have you spoken in tongues yet? Have you made the right noises? Have you done something that seems supernaturally spiritual? It looks to the life as a whole. Do you belong to Christ? Are you not just confessing with your mouth, but are you confessing with your very being that Jesus is indeed the Lord that you just said that he was? If one is filled with the Spirit, they will not be able to blaspheme the name of God. But the true confession of faith is in a person who says their obedience to the teachings of Jesus, that he is indeed their, curio- he, he is, he is indeed their curios, his Lord. Their, he is their king. It's going to take a few verses before we get there. But Paul intends for this litmus test to prove itself much more important than the other litmus test of asking, well, this is, does this person exhibit the gifts, the outward gifts of the Spirit? The expression of the outward signs, mostly speaking in tongues. And that would be easy, wouldn't it be? If we could just say, well, if you've spoken in tongues, there's no question about it, you are a believer. But unfortunately, we know that the heart of man is exceedingly wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can trust it? It is sick. And so there are times when somebody has the appearance of spirituality on the outside, and you have to look deeper than just the words, especially if those words don't have a true meaning. Those words can't be understood. Our hope 
must not be in our works, friends. Our hope must be in the work of the Savior. But the Savior's works will not be ineffective in us. If the Holy Spirit is in you, there will be evidence that Jesus is Lord in your life. He conforms you more and more to the image of His life. He sanctifies you and washes you clean from your sin. He increases your joy in the holy things that should matter most to one who is under the Lordship of Christ. And He helps you to know that when you do fail and make mistakes, that repentance is the way by which He has made you a path to come back and be close to Him again. Are you saved, friend? Do you see the evidence that the work of Jesus Christ is being applied in your life? That's the question I want us to leave with today. Let's bow our heads in prayer. God, we thank you for your grace and ask that, that if there is anyone indeed here today who has maybe professed with the mouth, perhaps a long time ago, perhaps recently, that, that you are indeed their Lord, but there is no evidence of that, that there is no true authority that they have given to you, Lord, and I pray that they would consider the weight of these words today. Help us to think about what it really means to follow after you, Lord God. Is our life in your hands? Do we care for you, Lord God? When we fail, when we make mistakes and fall into sin in the patterns of our old life, do we repent and return to you gladly thankful that your blood covers even our future sins? That is what Paul is trying to accomplish here in the Corinthian church. Many of them were falling away. Many of them had wrong ideas about what they should believe and how that belief should affect their actions. And yet, what does he do? He doesn't cast them off and say, you're not believers. He says, if you are truly in, in Christ, then simply see the truth, repent of what you were doing before, and come and conform yourself to his will. And let the Spirit do this good work that only the Holy Spirit can do. So God, we are grateful for the, the abiding presence of the Spirit in the life of believers, that, Lord, you are here to help us know if there are changes that need to be made, Lord, you can, you can urge us on. You can convict us with a good and holy guilt that helps us to realize that perhaps some of the things that we're doing are not honoring to you, are not fitting for the life of a Christian. And if that is the case, Lord God, we pray that you would glorify yourself by ridding us of those, those trappings of our former lives. Lord, help us to be free as you have set us free. And we praise you for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.